Welcome to yet another Resurrection Sunday. Here we go again to consider the truth of God's Word. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And even though we will be considering verses 1 through 17, I want us to focus this morning as we begin in verses 9 and 10. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In John chapter 20, verse 29, after doubting Thomas had seen and touched the resurrected Lord, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. The Lord Jesus in that verse commends true faith, which is the kind that cannot see and yet believes. We are a believing people rather than a seeing people. Therefore, the Bible says we are blessed. We walk by faith, which by necessity means not by sight. Unfortunately, I think we can all agree our sight is often very strong and seeks to drown our faith. This is because the world is a visible, tangible, and very loud place, and it makes war against our faith, which is rooted in invisible, unseen realities. So what do we do when our faith begins to give way to our sight, when we begin to rely more on what we see than what we know? For instance, what do we do when we are having to say goodbye to precious families from our church so that the kingdom of Christ may continue to grow in a different city? Sight may say we are shrinking or many other things. What does faith say? Faith says Jesus is building his church. But even beyond that, what do we do when the whole world seems to be changing for the worse? Where immorality abounds, school shootings are on the rise, little children are slaughtered in the womb, etc., etc. Sight says, let's keep to ourselves for nothing will ever change. Faith says, Jesus is still Lord and his truth still sets people free. And this is the battle, is it not? As Christians, we are always being confronted with this one question. Will we walk by sight, which leads to fear? Or will we walk by faith, which leads to courage? Paul was faced with this very question. Now let us see what faith is as we look at his life. And we go back to verse 1 of Acts 18, and here's the first point if you're following on the notes. 
Paul's faith was sustained in the midst of ever-changing circumstances. Paul's faith was sustained in the midst of ever-changing circumstances. Almost in every chapter of Acts, we see Paul facing something new. This was the nature of his calling both as an apostle and as a missionary. As an apostle, he was given the task of being the steward of the gospel, which is the message of redemption in Christ Jesus through his cross and his empty tomb. As a missionary, Paul was sent and led to different places so that the gospel given to him might be known and spread among the nations. If Paul knew anything, he knew ongoing circumstantial change. Things around Paul were never the same. Can you relate? Let's see first in verse 1, a new geographical setting. New geographical setting. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens, where we left off last week, and went to, what is the new city? Corinth. Ooh, Corinth. Having finished his short ministry in Athens, where Paul was bold and courageous, and he confronted the intellectual elites with the truth, Paul now moves west to the city of Corinth. In a way, this city of Corinth was even more impressive than Athens in terms of its culture and popularity. Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth in the year 46 BC, and its citizens loved to boast about its beauty. It was glamorous. It was a glamorous city. The Corinthians were a very proud, very proud people. This will become very significant in just a few moments. For now, consider next Paul's new gospel partnerships. Consider verses 2 and 3, Paul, Paul's new gospel partnerships. Verse 2, and he found in Corinth a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, meaning Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Not only did Paul find himself in a new city, but he also met new people, Aquila and Priscilla. We only know a few facts about Aquila and Priscilla. They were Christians. That's the first thing we know. They had moved to Corinth from Italy due to an imperial edict. John Stott, a commentator on the book of Acts, was of the opinion that their expulsion from Rome was because of the gospel. Christians were seen as disturbing the peace, therefore the emperor of Rome ordered them to leave. What is the fact? The fact is that Aquila and Priscilla, they ended up in Corinth and and became partners in the gospel with Paul. They had also a common trade. The Bible says they were tent makers. This might have involved leather work or cloth work. There's a lot of debate as to what that entailed. Both were a possibility. Where did Paul learn that training from? Well, all rabbis were encouraged to learn to work with their hands. Since Paul had been a rabbi, he probably learned the skill very early on in his rabbinic life. The point is that Paul sought to be self-sustaining. He was a hardworking man. It seems likely, however, 
that he lived mostly in poverty. This is quite natural for a man with an itinerant ministry, moving from one place to the next. And even though he had learned the secret of contentment in abundance or need, as he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, something happened in verse 5 of Acts 18 that changed things for the better. It says that Silas and Timothy finally arrived in Corinth after staying back in Berea for a while. Why does that matter? Why is that important? It is important because they came to Corinth, Timothy and Silas, bearing a monetary gift for Paul, likely from the church at Philippi. Imagine this, Lydia, remember Lydia in Philippi, whose eyes were opened to see the gospel through the preaching of Paul. The slave girl who was delivered from demonic influence and the Philippian jailer who was baptized Likely, all of them contributed to the financial needs of Paul. And that gift came to Paul by the hands of Silas and Timothy when they met him at Corinth. So generous was this gift that it served to free Paul to give himself completely to the ministry of the gospel in Corinth. In his letter to the Philippians later on, Paul openly praises them for their unmatched generosity toward him personally and also the ministry of the word broadly in Philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 14. So let me just say by way of encouragement, if you are faithful in your giving to the work of this local church for the spread of the gospel in Glen Rose and beyond, we praise God for you. We praise God for you. Faith gives. Generosity in giving is a reason to praise the Lord, and so we do. But as it normally goes, even though Paul's finances were greatly helped in Corinth through this gift, there is something else that was new for Paul in Corinth. But before we dive into that, into what that was, notice first how in the middle of all these new circumstances coming at Paul, he remained steadfast, which is our next point. Paul's faith Paul's faith was manifested through his single-minded purpose. Paul's faith was manifested through his single-minded purpose. Paul was not a perfect man. Unlike the Lord Jesus, who was perfectly and utterly holy, Paul was a sinner saved by grace, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Oh, but what a magnificent difference this great grace made in the life of Paul. Consider Paul's unmovable commitment to his Lord. What a lesson Paul can teach us, brothers and sisters. Changing circumstances do not have to deviate us from our purpose as Christians. Paul knew this very well, and he lived it out faithfully throughout his entire life. He did not take his eyes off the end goal. As he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal. That was Paul. I press on toward the goal. And what was the goal? What was the end goal of his life? What did he live for? He lived to see Jesus magnified both in his own life and in the lives of others. He was single-minded in purpose. Notice what he did in Corinth. First, he applied the same method. The same method. Consider verse 4. And he did what in Corinth? He reasoned in the synagogues 
every Sabbath and try to persuade Jews and Greeks. Regardless of how Paul might have felt at Corinth, he just wanted to reason with all the people. He appealed to the mind. He applied the same method no matter the new setting. Second, he reasoned with the same gospel, the same gospel. In verse 5, we read that Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul couldn't get enough of the gospel. That's all he did everywhere he went to prove that the Christ was Jesus. Notice that Paul did not, he never accommodated his message depending on what the crowds wanted to hear or the jealous cravings of the Jews might have been. Paul was more like a waiter in a restaurant. He did not cook the meal. All he did was to get the meal and serve it as it came. Jesus gave Paul his message, and he sought to deliver it faithfully. So Paul applied the same method. He reasoned with everybody, and the same gospel, proving that the Christ was Jesus. And from all of this, we also see the same results, the same results, namely opposition and faith. In a fallen world, brothers and sisters, let us not forget this. In a fallen world, truth will always create conflict. In a fallen world, truth will always create conflict. In verse 6, we read that his audience, what did they do? They opposed and reviled him, to which Paul responded by shaking out his garments and saying, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In other words, judgment, said Paul to the Jews, judgment is on your heads, and it is not my fault. You have rejected Jesus. You will pay for your own sins, which is, by the way, the same warning that goes out today to the world. The gospel call has not changed. As you can see, brothers and sisters, changing geographical locations did not mean leaving difficulties behind. Clearly, the grass is not always greener on the other side, as the popular saying goes. Even though the city was different and the gospel partners had been given to Paul were different, for him, the results of his ministry were the same. He always encountered opposition in some form or another. In fact, encountering Opposition could mean you are always doing something right when you're preaching in a falling world. Thankfully, it wasn't all opposition. Paul also encountered true faith. As we look at verse 7, we read that after leaving the synagogue and after telling them judgment is on you, he went to the house of a man named, who can tell me the name? I just don't want to pronounce it because I don't know how to pronounce it. That's on you. <laughs> Tidius, Justus, something like that. We'll go with it. And what do we know? Well, he lived next door to the synagogue, the one upon which Paul cast judgment. We know virtually nothing about him other than the location of his house and that he was a worshiper of God. What does that mean? He was a Gentile who had come to accept the Jewish religion, but without becoming circumcised. Now, it is safe to assume, I believe, that by this point, he was a Christian. 
He was a Christian because he received Paul in his own house. He was among those who had believed what Paul had preached. Then in verse 8, we read that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the same people that had rejected Paul, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and they were baptized. At least one Jewish household came to Christ along with many, many Gentiles in Corinth. This is, of course, how the church at Corinth began, the same church to which Paul would later on write his two letters, First and Second Corinthians. Now, as a good Baptist, I see the need to briefly emphasize the order of things. Please pay close attention to the direct statement that was made in verse 8. Crispus believed in the Lord. Amen? He believed in the Lord. He believed the gospel. He accepted the message preached by Paul as true. Jesus of Nazareth, the same man who died for sins, rose again, and he's the Christ promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Crispus, he trusted in Jesus for his salvation. He believed in the Lord. And what does Crispus' entire household do? The Bible says that they believed as well. They believed as well. Every member of the household partook of the same faith in Jesus. The entire household was baptized because the entire household did what? They believed. They believed. Likewise, all the Corinthians who believed in the gospel were also baptized. The point is this. We believe in Jesus. Therefore, we are what? Baptized. Baptized. As I said, as, as a good Baptist, I need to remind you that. Okay? We believe and then we are baptized. Now, having made that clarification, we have seen then that as Paul came to Corinth, his faith was sustained in the midst of ever-changing circumstances, and that his faith was also manifested through his single-minded purpose. But there is something more, however. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's something more that was unique. As we are about to see, Corinth, Corinth had a very unique impact on Paul. The Corinthians were a very proud people. And you know what else was true of Corinth? It was full of immorality. It was full of immorality. As many of you know, so immoral was Corinth that eventually to Corinthicize became synonymous with being sexually immoral. Became synonymous with being sexually immoral. Perversion was pervasive in the city of Corinth. How did Corinth affect Paul? Pay attention to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Remember, He's thinking about this moment in Acts 18. And I, said Paul, when I came to you, Corinthians, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now listen to this. And I was with you, Corinthians, in weakness. And in what? And in what? Fear and much trembling. 
Let me ask you this. What kind of challenge did Corinth bring to Paul? The kind that tempts to fear. Which brings us to our next great truth. Paul's faith was strengthened. Paul's faith was strengthened by his never-failing Lord. By his never-failing Lord. As Paul contemplated the challenges ahead, as he looked at the city of Corinth, the opposition that had been shown to him, the immorality and pride of the Corinthians, the mountain must have looked just too big. Even the great Apostle Paul, even the great Apostle Paul, whom we love and seek to imitate, was beginning to sense the paralyzing effects of what? Fear. Fear. But the Lord, who is rich in mercy, is never failing. The Lord is never failing. He is the good shepherd. And he strengthened Paul's faith, and he provided Paul first with unfailing comfort. Unfailing comfort. Look with me at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. What did he say to him? Do not be afraid. Why did the Lord appear to Paul at Corinth at that moment through a vision to tell him not to be afraid? Because that's precisely what Paul needed. He needed his faith strengthened. Isn't this truly remarkable? Isn't this truly amazing? The great apostle Paul, with all his boldness, fearlessness, and passion displayed in Athens as he stood before the intellectual elites of his time, is now being tempted to fear. Let me first encourage you. If you have ever been afraid, you are in good company. Even the great apostle Paul understands. You are not the first nor will you be the last. But consider the contrast. This is really important. If you think about Acts chapter 17, in Athens, the chapter before, Paul was full of boldness, enough to stand up to a mob of curious and mocking philosophers. But in the very next city, Paul is tempted to fear. This reminded me of an Old Testament prophet who went through something quite similar, Elijah. Elijah, what a prophet he was. Strong as they come, wasn't he? Strong enough to stand up to the prophets of Baal. How many? 450 of them. As we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18, he stood up to 450 false prophets. Elijah stood there on Mount Carmel, just as Paul did at the Areopagus, and boldly said to those false prophets, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Did you hear that? What a courage. What a demonstration of true, amazing faith. And yet, in the very next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19, we see Elijah, the same prophet, the courageous one, the bold one, 
Becoming what? Afraid. Giving into fear. Why? One woman. He stood up to 450 false prophets. And then one woman comes along. Ahab's wife. What was her name? Jezebel. She threatened Elijah with death, and her word did more to put fear on Elijah than all 450 prophets of Baal. So afraid did Elijah become that he asked God to go ahead and kill him. I don't want to deal with this woman. Give me 450 prophets, I'll take them all on. But one woman, I can't deal with it, God. Kill me. Kill me. So we see Elijah, we see in Elijah boldness and fearlessness and commitment and passion and great strength in one moment, ready and willing to take on 450 false prophets. And the very next moment, we see him in hiding at the threats of one evil woman. We see him go from the mountaintop of boldness down to the valley of fear. And here's Paul. Here's Paul. One moment, he's standing on Mars Hill calling the great philosophers to repentance. The next moment, he is in Corinth being tempted to fear. So the Lord, meaning the risen Lord Jesus, appears to him in a vision and tells him precisely what he needed to hear. Paul, do not be afraid. Have you ever needed that? Paul, do not be afraid. This is the unfailing comfort of God for his people. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us admit to one thing. We are indeed weak apart from the Lord. Do you realize that when Paul tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, he is calling us simultaneously to recognize our own utter weakness apart from him. Be strong in the Lord because in yourself, you can't. You're weak. But the Lord tells you this morning, do not be afraid. Is the whole world changing around you? Do not be afraid. Is the pressure of living faithfully for Christ becoming increasingly heavy? Do not be afraid. Is the temptation to remove yourself from the fight for truth becoming more and more real? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is the message of our Lord to us this morning. Whatever might be happening in our world, do not be afraid. But then the question becomes this, how? Listen, you don't want to miss this, okay? Time to wake up. Some of you were in a nap, deep. <laughs> now we need to go back. How does fear manifest itself? How does fear manifest itself? In particular, let me ask you this. What is the biggest threat to a prophet like Elijah, or to an apostle like Paul? Well, if you think about it, what is the main task of a prophet? To speak God's word. And what is the main task of an apostle? To speak God's word. Then what's the main manifestation of fear? Verse 9 answers the question. Do not be afraid, but go on what? Speaking and do not be silent. If the temptation, temptation at Corinth was to fear, the manifestation of this fear was to be silent. 
Therefore, immediately after telling Paul not to be afraid, he reminds him of his unfailing word. Unfailing word. Paul, keep speaking. Why? Because what you are speaking is not your word. It is mine. It is mine, says the Lord. You're not speaking your own word, Paul. You're speaking my word. Interestingly, and going back to Jezebel, what was her main desire against Elijah? Her main desire against Elijah was to silence him. To silence him. You see, the Jews at that time had fallen into a massive hole of religious syncretism where all the gods and all the practices were allowed. They were worshiping Baal. But Elijah wanted no compromise, no compromise. Therefore, Jezebel sought to silence him by killing him because she wanted to lead the people into spiritual adultery. Do you remember uh, Theotira, the church, uh, one of the churches in Revelation? One of those churches in the book of Revelation, the one in Theotira, also had a problem with a false prophetess named Jezebel. Oh, how curious this is. Jezebel again in the book of Revelation. It is difficult to know whether she was an actual woman or a reference to the evil spirit of Jezebel. But in any case, this Jezebel was tempting the church in Theophira to compromise with what? The surrounding culture of idolatry and immorality. The problem was that the church at Theophira was beginning to tolerate Jezebel. They were falling for it, which means they were flirting with the idea of, can anybody guess? Silence. They were flirting with the idea of silence. Silence keeps you out of trouble. In Corinth, Paul was being tempted to this very thing. We know because he was told explicitly, do not be afraid, go on speaking. Do not be what? Silent. Interesting, isn't it? You know what's interesting? Cancel culture has been around for thousands of years. It's nothing new. Killing Elijah was just an ancient form of cancel culture taken to its logical conclusion. I have mentioned this before, but it is worth repeating. For those of us who have been tasked, given the task of taking the Great Commission to the ends of the world by making disciples of Jesus the most common and constant manifestation of fear is always and always will be. You know the answer by now? Silence. Silence. Brothers and sisters, Jezebel died many thousands of years ago, but the evil spirit is still very much alive. Listen to me. In a culture that is giving itself up to corruption, lies, immorality, hatred, and all forms and manifestations of sin, the church will be tempted to silence. 
But let me be blunt. The greatest enemy of the world is not the spread of lies, but the concealment of truth. The silence of the church is the death of a society. How can I say that? Because what we have been given is not our words, not our opinions, but the words of the Lord. This is all we have, is the words of the Lord. And his words are what? Life. Life. What is the church? After all, the church is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the pillar and buttress of what? The truth. Christian silence is the true killer. Why? Because only the truth can set people, what? Free. Paul knew it, but he was being tempted to forget. He was beginning, he was being tempted to self-cancellation due to fear. And so the Lord reminded him, do not be silent, go on speaking. And then, then the Lord reminds Paul of another wonderful reality, his unfailing presence. Unfailing presence. Look at verse 10. Why do you not be, be afraid? Why do you not need to be afraid? And why do you need to keep speaking? For I am with you. I am with you. Right before his ascension, as the Lord gave his disciples the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, which I'm going to ask you to turn, Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to be in verses 20 through 18 through 20. Matthew 28. Right before the Lord ascended and he gave them this great commission, he told them two massive truths. I want us to look at the second one first, which is at the end of verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20. And here Jesus makes a promise. Right before his ascension, what did he tell the disciples? And behold, I am with you. Always to the end of the age. There are some of the most reassuring words you could ever read. The Lord Jesus, just like God in, did in the Old Testament, promised to be with his people, and he does so by his Holy Spirit, as he was with Moses and with Joshua and with Elijah and with David, God is now with Paul. In verse 10, Paul was reminded of the central blessing of salvation in Christ, God's presence with us forever. We are with him. He is with us forever. So let me ask you, have you forgotten that as a Christian man or as a Christian woman, you are never, you are never, you are never alone? Have you forgotten that even in the, as the wind blows and the sea rages on, the Lord Jesus stands on the water with you? Paul was being tempted to forget as he faced great challenges at Corinth. But on that day, he was reminded, so too we are being reminded today, the Lord our God is with us for how long? Until the very end. The very end, both of our lives and of our human history itself. But the promise of his unfailing presence comes hand in hand with something else just as great. The promise of his unfailing presence. Sovereignty, unfailing sovereignty. Notice the assurance given to Paul in verse 10. And no one will attack you to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. Who can make a promise like that? 
Who can say no one will attack you? Only the one who has authority over everyone. Over everyone. This is how Jesus exercises his kingly rule. Going back to the Great Commission, we talked about the promise that Jesus made. He promised his presence. He promised to be with us always. And that's how the Great Commission ends. Now let us look at how the Great Commission begins in verse 18. All authority, says Jesus, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love it. The Great Commission ends with a promise of Christ's unfailing presence, but begins with a statement concerning his unfailing sovereignty. And this sovereignty is applied in verses 12 through 17 of Acts 18. As the Jews sought once again to attack Paul and get him in serious trouble with the Roman authorities, their attempts failed. Their attempts failed. That's the point of verses 12 through 17. Gallio, says the Bible, the proconsul, dismissed their accusations against Paul and sent them all away. In retaliation, they started beating another Jewish man, and, and really, it's hard to tell why they did that. The man was Sosthenes, who likely replaced Crispus as the ruler of the synagogue. But Gallio ignored all of this. All the commotion created by the Jews did nothing against Paul. He was thus set free to go and preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus sovereignly protected Paul by letting his enemies self-destruct. Listen, my friends, we must remember this. No one can touch the bride of Christ the church, without his sovereign hand allowing it. And when he does allow it, it is only for our good. Rest assured, my brothers and sisters, we serve a sovereign Lord. And here comes the final piece of encouragement for Paul. As he contemplated the challenges of Corinth, he was reminded of one final truth. Christ's unfailing election. Christ's unfailing election. Paul, the Lord said, do not fear, go on speaking, for I am with you and no one will harm you. How can I know that? And here the Lord Jesus says, for I have many in this city who are what? My people. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And I want us to consider together verses 14 through 16. And listen to what Jesus had already promised. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. This explains the words of the Lord to Paul in Corinth. John 10, 14, the Lord said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will do what? They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. In other words, yes, Paul, Corinth looks really bad. There's blatant immorality, abundant idolatry, and great pride. But Paul, you must remember that I bought a people for myself. Many of them are in Corinth, believe it or not. 
Many of my people are Corinthians, believe it or not. All they need, Paul, is to hear the gospel that I'm sending to them through you. Go on speaking, Paul. They will believe. They are my people, my elect, my chosen ones from before the foundation of the world. They just don't know it yet. But in the gospel, Paul, in the gospel that you speak to them, through your preaching, Paul, they will hear my voice. I will call them through your preaching, Paul. Paul, they will hear my voice. They will come and they will believe. This is yet another aspect of Christ's kingly rule. Because he is king, he has the authority to call a people for himself. So strengthened was Paul that he ended up staying in Corinth for 18 months. For 18 months doing ministry there. And I want us to consider the great encouragement we can glean from this. God has set apart a people for himself. Therefore, our mission cannot fail. This, brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the doctrine of election. It reminds us that the Great Commission cannot be thwarted, that our labor is not in vain, and that the Lord Jesus will save all whom he has called to himself. There are many people in Glenrose whom the Lord has chosen for himself that are yet to believe. All they need is for the gospel to reach their ears through our mouths. And as we speak, the Lord Jesus takes his own word, he plants it deep in the heart and the mind, and he saves his elect, and he brings them home. We just need to get the gospel out. The Lord Jesus is the one who saves. So what is the central lesson that we can learn from this? Well, I guess there are many that we could mention, but I have boiled it down to this one. Here's the central lesson. To walk by faith, at least in part. To walk by faith means to remain single-minded in purpose. To walk by faith means to remain single-minded in purpose. In the midst of ever-changing circumstances. In the midst of ever-changing circumstances. Trusting in our never-failing Lord who is our good shepherd who is our good shepherd. We find ourselves in very, very dark times. We are being tempted to fear all around. And the cancel culture is seeking to silence the truth more so than ever before. Immorality of the grossest kinds abound. In fact, I believe even Corinth would blush at the depth of perversion that we are seeing today. But we must not be silent because the silence of the church is the death of a culture. Only the truth can set people free. So the only question left to ask is this. Will we walk by sight, which leads to fear and silence? Or will we walk by faith, which leads to courage and speech? The Lord is telling us this morning, Fear not, for I am with you. Go on and make disciples of all nations. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that your gospel is your glory. And that your gospel is saving people even as we speak. 
that the Lord Jesus, through his death on the cross, has removed the barrier of sin, has paid the penalty for our sin, that to him you have given the wages of our sin, which is death. And so he paid in full our debt. And yet the same Lord Jesus rose again. And now he is seated at your right hand, ruling over his church and sending us to be his spokespeople so that your truth may reach their ears. We thank you for the place in which you have placed us. We thank you for this town, for Glenrose. And you have placed us here for a reason, so that we might be light and salt. And so we pray, Lord, that you will continue to use us for that purpose, that many, many in Glenrose will come to know the truth through the ministry of this local church. And we pray the same for Fairview in Granbury. Father, that you will use these two churches to bring about the obedience of faith and that many people will come to know the truth as we have. So we thank you for your call upon our lives. We thank you for opening our eyes. Even though we were blind, now we can see because you are God. So we thank you for this. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and teach us once again what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.